Hello and welcome to episode 28 of the Ideal Nutrition Podcast. Today we're going to be talking about the ketogenic diet and ketosis. Once again, I am with new co-host Tyler Brooks, who he's going to be doing another podcast after this one as well. So we'll be doing three total, partly because honestly, I want to take a holiday. So I'm putting out some extra content basically or banking some extra content in advance so that while I'm on holidays, we'll have stuff to go. And while Leah is on holidays as well, actually. And then after that, Leah will be back for future podcasts. So as mentioned today, we're going to be talking about ketosis. What is it and what's some basic background on it? Sure. So um, first of all, ketosis is basically a, it's kind of like a metabolic state that the body goes into after you have had a certain period of time without access to carbohydrate. Um, it's clinically measured by a certain number of ketones. Typically, we would class it as like above three millimolar, I believe is kind of an ideal state to aim for with being classed as being in ketosis. Um, yeah, above a three millimolar concentration of ketones in the blood. Um, so ketones are the... I guess the the byproduct of breaking down fat for energy in the absence of having access to carbohydrates. Um, and there are three basic ketones. You've got beta-hydroxybutyrate, acetoacetate, and acetone. Um, and we use two of those, the beta-hydroxybutyrate and acetate, uh, acetoacetate for um, energy production. Basically, it's an alternative energy source instead of glucose that the body and the brain, or the I guess the cells, including the brain, can use for energy. Um, Ketogenic diet has kind of clinical origins, so it's not just a fad, fat loss diet or weight loss diet. Uh, it was actually used clinically um, back, I think, as early as around about the 1920s to treat epilepsy, um, in particular in the pediatric population or in children. Um, so it has this kind of effect where you will see seizure, redu uh, seizure reductions in epileptic patients. Um, and in children, that's particularly useful instead of exposing them to various medications, which have, you know, quite serious side effects at times. Um, you can simply, through dietary intervention, help manage seizure frequency and, you know, all these sorts of things. So clinically, it was kind of, you know, useful back in the day to help manage seizures. Um, that did have some flow over into adult populations and some, obviously it works for adults as well, but typically not as a first line treatment. Usually we start with medications there. But anyway, yeah, your keto diet has sort of clinical origins, but um, in more recent years, it was sort of popularized by various personalities. Um, you might have heard of the Atkins diet, which is a kind of high-fat diet, um, obviously popularized by Atkins himself. What's his first name? I, I don't know. I, never I, I just know his first name. That's all I know. <laughs> um, anyway, so he's obviously popularized this idea of the high-fat diet, and you know, quite a lot of people found it successful for weight loss. Um, since there's been various other personalities that have promoted it and made it even more mainstream. So people like Joe Rogan and various, you know, guests he's had on his podcasts. There's been quite a few, you know, well-regarded or high-level scientists and researchers that kind of favor a ketogenic diet approach. Um, various biohackers have used a ketogenic diet and all of these sorts of things have made it a bit more mainstream. Um, but yeah, basically to wrap it up, like quick summary, it's a high-fat diet, um, you have to go high-fat to the point where you're severely restricting carbohydrates, enough to the point where your body is going to produce ketones as an alternative energy source. Those ketones are produced through breaking down body fat. Yeah, sick. So, yeah, I was listening to um, Tim Ferriss, um, Dominic D'Agostino. So, back in, I think it was 2015, I went way back into the archive. And it's really interesting because, as you said, like high-level scientists... Dominic D'Agostino, he's a smart guy. Very smart guy. <laughs> Way smarter than I am. <laughs> and he makes it sound quite appealing. And like, 
even some of the studies he was referencing, because like this is like way off on a tangent, but like thoughts on building keto, like building muscle on a ketogenic diet. Like my understanding is like there's not many of those like studies that have even been done. You hear him talk about it, and you hear him talk about it as if it's like it's it's a big possibility. He himself is a hundred kilos, and like I haven't seen photos, but I assume he's pretty jacked. Like, yeah, I've only seen him on the video podcasts and Rogan and that, and he's yeah, not a small dude. He doesn't yeah. look like he's fading away to a shadow. He's got some muscle mass. Yeah. Also, just on a side note, but he was talking about like having three hundred grams of fat per day, mm. which fat has nine calories per kilo, so nine times three—that's like two thousand seven hundred calories just coming from fat. Yeah. Insane. Yeah, it's huge. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, sick. So I suppose one question I was having with the like seizures and stuff like that, is there like medication resistant seizures? Is that a thing as well? Yeah, there is. So, you know, seizures are classified or epilepsy is classified into various categories. So, um, based on how resistant to seizure treatment drugs, the epilepsy is, um, it, you know, you'll, you'll be categorized under certain levels of seriousness. Um, the most serious being, it's called SRSE. Now, as I mentioned, ketogenic diet isn't usually a frontline or a first approach for treating seizures in adult populations. It's usually implemented if there have been unsuccessful attempts to control seizures with medications and things like that. Um, SRSE is typically um, a resistance to or like a continued seizure even with multiple levels of anti-seizure medications. Um, there is research out there showing that if you jump onto a ketogenic diet, as in a proper therapeutic ketogenic diet, um, you will typically um, get a seizure reduction, if not a complete freedom of seizures. Um, like I said, the research kind of shows this in combination, or ketogenic diet in combination with the medications, yeah. not just ketogenic diet alone. It's kind of a duty of care thing. You yeah. can't just stop someone's medications that are, are treating them for a serious illness, um, but they add it to it. It wasn't being fixed with the medications yeah. alone. Add the keto diet and it's kind of fixed. It's like, well, what's the extra variable? Um, but yeah, the research is kind of hard to interpret because there's no clear direct link that you can draw and say this is just from the ketogenic diet. Yeah. They could have potentially just got better from being on the medication for longer. Um, that's probably unlikely seeing as it hasn't been effective. Um, but yeah, that just, just kind of makes the research problematic. But I do believe there's a relatively good chance that it's going to have a pretty good clinical outcome if you do jump onto a ketogenic diet um, with epilepsy, especially in the case of the medication-resistant epilepsy. Yeah. And I guess the difference between like a therapeutic ketogenic diet for that and what most people would probably want to do if they were doing it for say weight loss or other purposes is probably just going to be the protein content and like getting carbs super, super low, having fat super, super high and protein like pretty low in the therapeutic sense. Yeah, very much so. So therapeutically, I believe it's a four to one. So four parts fat to one part combined um, protein and carbohydrates. Yeah. So like 80% fat, basically. Yeah, at least. Yeah. Um, and then split the rest between, you know, a yeah. small amount of carbohydrates. I believe it's usually somewhere around about 15% protein. Yeah. So if you're thinking 80% fat, 15% protein, you've got yeah. about 5% of your total energy requirement left that you can come from carbs. Um, and that's so that the carbohydrates don't kick you out of ketosis. And so the protein doesn't kick you out And so the protein doesn't, yeah. yeah. So that's one of the common things we do see people do wrong in terms of a, a non-therapeutic approach to it or a, like the general person to it in ketogenic diet. They'll overeat protein or overeat meat. 
Um, now, certain amino acids can be broken down and turned into carbohydrate, essentially. Or glucose, um, yeah. Yep, so glucose um, through gluconeogenesis. Yeah. Um, and that will kick you out of ketosis if you are striving for a keto diet. Um, therapeutically, that's important, obviously, in the seizure control. So they're quite strict in you know, a yeah. therapeutic or a hospital ketogenic diet. Does it, does it matter for average Joe? Does it matter for average Joe or does it matter for like an athlete? I don't think it does matter if you have a brief sort of dip out of like maximal ketone production through having a little bit of extra protein. If you're overeating it every day and it's constantly producing a significant amount of glucose through breaking down protein and you're never really getting into ketosis from you know, too high of a protein intake, I'd say it kind of defeats the purpose a little bit. Yeah. Um, but if you're just having a bit of extra protein occasionally, so for example, if you take quite a large bolus after a workout, like a big serve of protein, and that temporarily drops you out of ketosis, I still think you'd get the majority of the proposed benefits from keto through yeah. you know, general dietary adherence, just with a few excursions of high protein. Yeah. But I don't think so. Yeah, cool. So from the weight loss perspective, why, if people stick to it, does it typically work for weight loss? I think, now this is, again, not exact scientific it's, research. It's a leading question. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I would say that, for some people, the approach of like no wiggle room, like there with yeah. keto diet, there is no room for like one foot in, one foot out. You can't just have a little bit. It's like, no, you can't you come have out any carbohydrates yeah. or it will screw up the whole diet. So for those people who, and again, all or nothing approach is sometimes negatively perceived, but yeah. for some people it does work. So if you are the type of person who is like, okay, I know I can't just have two cookies, otherwise I'll eat the whole packet. Yeah. So I'll just have none. So on ketogenic diet, it's like, okay, I've got a very clear line in the sand. I can't have any. any yeah. um, so sometimes that works. And if you're sticking to a diet that strictly, it's going to work. Like the only diet that works is the one that you adhere to or stick to. doesn't matter what it is. Yeah. Keto, paleo, whatever else. Um, but if you adhere to it, it's probably going to work. So if your ketogenic diet is set up to be for weight loss, for example, and you're controlling your calorie intake through not overeating carbohydrates like you might yeah. normally tend to, it's going to work. Um, there are various misconceptions about yeah. fat loss versus weight loss, which, which I think we'll get into. Um, but I think, yeah, having those real strict guidelines works for some people. Yeah. So most people are going to incidentally reduce their calorie intake. Like if you hmm. reduce your carbohydrate intake, not only does it reduce your carbohydrate intake, but also, as you said, like um, cookies, cakes, like ice creams, like all these other things that aren't just carbohydrates, they have fat as well. Like it gets rid of a lot of hyper palatable foods. You get exactly. stuck with like just one macronutrient. Another thing that people point to is reductions in appetites. Do you see that as a thing? Yeah, I think so. We typically look at fat as, we would refer to it as a very satiating macronutrient. Yeah. Similar to protein, we, we do call protein quite a satiating macronutrient as well. Like yeah. um, that means obviously it's, it's filling, it fills you up, it's sort of, ends those or starts to reduce those kind of cues that you get to say that you're hungry, keep eating. Yeah. Um, being satiated is that sort of reverse of that. It starts to downregulate that drive to eat and that appetite. So the more fat and protein we tend to eat, the more of that satiation response we have. Um, carbohydrates do this to a much lower degree than your other yeah. macronutrients. So there is that potential appetite reduction in terms of obviously the satiation aspect of it. And then there is also potentially... And this might be a bit more subjective for some rather than others, but the blood glucose control. Yeah. You're not getting these big increases in blood glucose from having a high amount of carbohydrate. Um, that high amount of carbohydrate is causing a production of insulin. If you've had a very high amount of carbohydrate, you're producing a lot of insulin. That's yeah. grabbing all that blood glucose out of your bloodstream, storing it away in your muscles or converting it into fat if you've got 
more than enough carbohydrate already. Um, and then you're going to have this drive to eat more carbohydrate again because your insulin has pulled everything out of your bloodstream. Yeah. Um, so there is that sort of aspect of like um, insulin control or blood yeah. glucose control that might sort of interact with appetite. Yeah. I find that a pretty deep topic, hey, because like there was one stage where I was looking for people with malnutrition or just people who struggle to gain size. There was one idea that was chucked out there being like, hey, let's give people like 15 grams of really easy to digest carbohydrate an hour before their meal. Mm-hmm. Based on that theory, that could make them hungrier and make them want to eat more food. Potentially. And like, I, I don't know if it actually plays out that way. I think even the research and that's quite mixed about whether it makes any difference because like mm. 15 grams is not enough to fill somebody up and it could have the same effect. But And how much insulin response are you really going to get 15 from grams, a, yeah. cum- like a total load of 15 grams? Yeah. I'd sign up for the study though. Yeah, it's an interesting I'll idea. Sugar. But yeah, uh, another concept that a lot of people will be talking about is... Oh, actually, no, there was one thing I did want to touch on that. Hey, so mm. like there's a curveball of a study. I don't know if you've seen it there, Kevin Hall study. So... Kevin Hall did a study comparing low-carb diets, I can't recall if it was ketogenic, to a higher-carbohydrate, low-fat, mostly unprocessed diet where they allowed the participants to eat ad libitum. Mm -hmm. And the people in the higher-carbohydrate diet actually ate less calories, which is really, really interesting. And it's counter to the low-carb kind of narrative. Mm. But that being said, the reason it stands out is because it is a curveball of a study. It's not what people expected, and it's like, only study I'm aware of showing that. Yeah, I, I haven't read the study. Like, there are other things that would potentially, you know, I'd want to look at in that study. It's it also like, depends on the foods that are exactly, in there. Exactly. Like, were they having high fiber? Were they having yeah. whole foods? It was specifically fruits and vegetables. It was high fiber. It was whole foods. It was, yeah. yeah. So, these sorts of things are obviously going to um, have the similar sort of effect as like that satiation effect. We know fiber is quite a satiating macronutrient or nutrient as well. Um, I guess you could sort of class it as a macronutrient. <laughs> Probably not. It's technically, it's, 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 chemically it's a carbohydrate. It's got, it's got calories as well. Like there's something like on average has about two calories per gram, which is like another curveball because like yeah. we think of it having even zero or some people well, in America, it's often included as part of their carbohydrates as well. Yeah, it's listed differently on the yeah. nutrition panels. Yeah, in Australia, it's not listed. It's listed completely separately. So we often think of it having zero, mm. but on average, it has about two. It's in between those two kind of things. Yeah. Anyway, random aside. Yeah. Um, your, your fiber is going to make you feel fuller. It's going to slow down digestion and things like this as well. So that's potentially going to reduce appetite. If you're eating lots of fruits and vegetables and whole foods, it's going to fill yeah. up your stomach more. It's more volume for less calories. So I could see there being an interaction there, but it would be... Yeah, very dependent on the types of food choices those people had. Yeah. A boring thing that I've got to add, but I think it's relevant because a lot of people will be like, oh, keto works really well for me, particularly at the start of a diet. Or they'll say every time I add carbs, my weight goes up. Something that like I hate talking about, but it's something that everyone needs to be aware of. It's just like scale weight fluctuations. Carbohydrates, every gram of glycogen you store, you store roughly 2.7 mil of water alongside it. Mm. If you start... If you go from, say, 300 grams of carbs per day to zero, your weight is going to drop off a cliff in the first For couple sure. of days. Same thing if you are low carb all the time and you have 300 grams of carbs one day, your weight is going to skyrocket for the first first week or so, or even less than a week, but it's going to skyrocket over a couple of days. And that's something to be really, really mindful of when you're self-experimenting and seeing what works well for you as well, being like, well, we, we need to factor in the water weight changes when we're assessing these changes over a longer period of time as well. For sure. It's um, it's definitely one of the, like, the main things that people misinterpret about the ketogenic diet is like this successful weight loss in the initial phases of the diet. Now, a lot of that's probably not going to be body fat. Yeah. There's this confusion that's just rampant between weight loss and fat loss. 
weight loss does not necessarily equate to fat loss. Like Aiden's mentioned, you know, like you mentioned, you know, you do have this storage of carbohydrate in the body. So I guess the, if you, it depends on muscle mass, but say you're, because we work with lifters. Yeah. Um, say you're a 90 kilogram male, which is my weight class. And say you are 30% body fat, which is my, no. <laughs> um, so, you know, depending on how much muscle mass you have, you do store your carbohydrates in your muscles. Um, carbohydrates are also stored in the liver. So say you're storing somewhere between 500, call it 700 grams of carbohydrate is not, you know, a crazy amount to store across all of your muscle mass and in your liver. So it takes about a week or so to fully deplete carbohydrates. Um, over that first week in the ketogenic diet, not only are you depleting that 700 grams of carbohydrate, you're also depleting, for ease of maths, call it three times that in water. Yeah. So 2.1 kilos worth of water is gone, plus another 700 grams of carbohydrate. There's nearly three kilograms down in that first week. Yeah. Have you lost any body fat in that three kilograms? Not if you haven't been in a calorie deficit, Yeah. but you will lose three kilograms on the scales. Um, yeah. You know, and that's just literally stuff that's being stored in your body. It's not even body fat at this point. So people are always confusing scale weight change versus body fat change. And that's just a very separate concept and something that does play a lot into the ketogenic diet and the weight fluctuations we see with the average person doing it. Yeah. Let's go through some misconceptions. Um, what do we want to start with? Let's start with like the brain stuff. Do you want to talk about that? Like sure. brain, glucose, etc. Yeah. So I don't know. I like this just random fact. Um, in... As Australian dietitians, our credentials aren't recognized in America. We can't just go and directly practice in America. We have to um, redo various bridging courses. And um, I believe you still have to do like mentoring or an, inter an internship as well yeah, right. before you can become a registered practitioner in America. Um, and that comes partly, I think, from some of the differences in the way they look at nutrition. Um, in America, for example, they have a recommended daily intake or a minimum uh, recommended intake of carbohydrates per day um, as in you should eat this amount of carbohydrates or you are potentially going to develop really like have thing? a health consequence yeah, yeah right, right. Um, whereas in Australia we don't like carbs yeah. are not an essential nutrient we have essential amino acids or essential proteins we have essential fatty acids and things like that that we can't otherwise get without obtaining from the diet um, there is no such thing as an essential carbohydrate yeah like we touched on at the start the body can make carbohydrates out of other stuff yeah if you're having protein you're getting glucose yeah your yeah. body can break it down from that it's um so there's a glycerol molecule that's kind of attached to triglycerides which are used to you know, transport fat and store fat. Um, your body can break down that into essentially glucose as well. Yeah. Um, so the body can make glucose or essentially make carbohydrates from these other sources. So we don't class it here in Australia as essential. Um, now, you'll hear a lot of the reason why a keto diet is bad is because the brain needs carbs. And there are some parts of the brain that definitely need carbs, um, but the body can break down those other things into enough carbs to satisfy yeah. the brain. Yeah. There are other parts of the brain and the majority of the brain that can use ketones as an alternative fuel source. So, yeah. you know, one of the common misconceptions is that you won't be able to think as well or there'll be some sort of cognitive problem or the brain needs sugar or the brain needs carbs. Um, it, it sort of doesn't. It can use ketones very effectively, in some cases more effectively, and this is one of the potential mechanisms that um, is proposed with helping with seizure control. Um, glucose uptake or sugar uptake into the brain could be impacted. So the ketones allow the brain to have an alternate fuel source. Um, so yeah, there's no real requirement for the brain to need carbohydrates. And if it does need it, the body can make it to the, I guess, to the volume it needs to for the brain. Yeah. Another thing we want to talk about is um, 
diabetes. So ketoacidosis is something that a lot of people talk about. They talk about, like people who haven't really looked into ketosis much often will be like, well, in type one diabetes, ketoacidosis is what goes wrong for them. Like that's like if they aren't having insulin and ketone levels get too high and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. My understanding is it's pretty it's pretty much impossible to do that just through a ketogenic diet. As you said, like what number do you say? Like five millimole per liter ketones in the blood. Um, even like exogenous ketones, they'll have like a warning label being like, don't have too many of these. But like, even if you went like three times their like dosage, you're probably still not going to put yourself into that position. Is that right? Yeah. It's, it's um, basically the, the physiology or the pathophysiology of um, ketoacidosis. It kind of, can't be reached by the average healthy person. Yeah. Unless you have some sort of problem with, you know, insulin, like production or insulin sensitivity and things like that, that we see in diabetics, you can't um, overproduce ketones to the point where they will become so acidic in the blood that it will cause any damage. So that's kind of what ketoacidosis is. It's an unregulated, uncontrolled production of ketones. Ketones are slightly acidic. Now the body can balance acidity quite effectively. Um, but if it gets to a point where it's, like vastly too much, um, it does tend to make the blood more acidic. So that's kind of a problem in diabetics, more so only, and you can't really reach that through normal physiological levels, even supplementing, like you said, it will be very hard to get up to those uncontrolled amounts of ketones in the blood. Yeah. And running low on time, and I do want to cover a lot of things. So the next one I want to cover mm -hmm. is like, just like blood lipids, like cholesterol and stuff like that. Yep. Um, if you follow a ketogenic diet, is your LDL cholesterol going to increase? Is that a bad thing? I think it probably will. I think LDL cholesterol, well, I don't know. I think it wouldn't be a stretch to say it definitely will because you're consuming more fat. Yeah, I've still seen in some studies that drop if people drop a significant amount of body weight. I've still yeah, seen okay. that. But like I'd say on average, like particularly if your body weight didn't change. Yeah, yeah. so, you know, in consuming fat, you're probably going to be consuming more dietary cholesterol. Some of that is going to be absorbed. And then obviously your expression of... Um, LDL cholesterol as a transporter for fat around the body is going to increase potentially depending on the types of fat you're consuming. Um, so I think overall your, your cholesterol probably will increase and the LDL will increase. You can obviously, as you just mentioned, mitigate that with some weight loss or the types of fats that you're choosing. So, you know, we can look to choose a healthier fat option on a ketogenic diet. We can look to choose lean meats and add healthy fats, things like your olive oil and your avocados and things like that which are more, I guess, representative of a healthier cholesterol profile. So those things tend to be associated with an increase or a decrease LDL cholesterol. Um, yeah, exercise is probably going to play a role as well, which is going to increase your HDL cholesterol. Um, going back to what you asked about, does it matter? Does it matter, yeah. I think it matters if your cholesterol ratio is out of whack. So when we're looking at cholesterol in the body, we tend to look at the ratio of HDL cholesterol, which is your good cholesterol, versus the ratio of bad cholesterol, your LDL cholesterol. Um, it's more concerning when those are out of proportion or out of balance. So I think your total cholesterol is definitely going to go up uh, just because you're eating more fats and potentially more cholesterol as well through the diet. Is it concerning? Potentially not if it's, you know, still in a healthy ratio. And then the other thing we often sort of talk about when we are worrying about cholesterol is how much sugar or what's your blood glucose level Um how much sugar is floating around in the bloodstream or glucose floating around in the bloodstream with that cholesterol. We think of sugar as like a highly oxidative molecule. It's reactive. So when cholesterol becomes a problem is when it becomes oxidized and then starts to form a plaque in your vessels, in your blood vessels, that hardens and reduces your 
you know, stiffness of, or the ability of your blood vessels to adapt to blood flow. Um, and that's what we call like arteriosclerosis or hardening of the vessels and arteries. That tends to be more common in like a Western style diet that's high sugar, high fat. Yeah. I think in the absence of extreme amounts of either fat or sugar, it's probably not going to be as much of an issue. What are your thoughts on that? Explain that last bit again. So you said in the so, absence of, because keto is an extreme amount of fat. Sorry, in the absence of both together. Yeah, both together. I mean to yeah, say. Gotcha. Um, yeah. So if you're having high fat, high sugar, it's probably going to be a problem. Yeah. If you're having, you know, a high amount of carbohydrate, a high amount of, high amount of blood glucose, but you have a, a lower amount of cholesterol in the bloodstream, yeah. there's not as much stuff there for that, you know, yeah. glucose to oxidize. Um, on the flip side, if you've got a high amount of cholesterol, but not yeah. as much sugar to oxidize it, it's potentially going to be less of an issue too. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Something that I think would be interesting, and I'm not even sure if any of this exists, but like like long-term studies, large groups of people, ketogenic diets, measuring cardiovascular disease risk, stuff like that, seeing actual outcomes, like seeing like, is is this a risk that like a lot of people are concerned of? Is it even a real phenomenon? Is it even like a, like, is it causing issues? Yeah, it's it's so hard to, I guess, pull meaningful data from a lot of these studies just based on study design. Yeah. Um, just through what we would look at as like epidemiological studies. You'd need so many people to be doing it. Yeah, exactly. And that's so hard to pull out like specific lifestyle factors. Usually these people are just, they get told about an intervention and then they go away and they do their own thing and yeah. they come back or somebody checks up on them yeah. at a later point in time. But do we know if they were actually and following the diet? That's or? a hard thing with adherence to a ketogenic diet because it is, it is a hard diet yes. and a low percentage of people do adhere to it. Some people, it's the best thing in the world. <laughs> <laughs> other people it's just really really hard like it's not a pleasant experience to some people for sure yeah. i've had a pretty big range of clients between well actually i'd say the majority don't like it yeah but then you know you get those people who just swear by it as yeah. well and they love it so it's as always it's going to be individual um and that's going to come down to adherence as well so yeah yeah well we'll have to wrap things up there just because of time so this has been episode what episode is it episode 28 of the ideal nutrition podcast so thank you to everybody who's listened to this one and enjoyed it and if you have any feedback or anything like that please let us know